0: Okay, as usual, here's the order. We will open it up to anything with Psalm 19 or the Psalms in general that we've been looking at, and then we do have some points on the sheet from the Holy Spirit that we can go over if there aren't any questions, but yes, Natalie? Um, don't I have there Psalm? Isn't it? No, it's not written there, is it? No, it's Psalm thirty-four, one, eleven. Psalm thirty-four, eleven, is, is David says, "Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord." Psalm thirty-four, eleven. Yes. Oh no! No, you got to raise your hand again. Okay. Yeah, let's go there. We were running out of time. Never that never happens with me, because I never I never I never talk long. I'm always brief and to the point. Let's go to Numbers thirteen. Fifteen. Numbers fifteen. Let's go to let's go to the thing that I wrote down. Numbers fifteen. Um and then we'll check out Hebrews ten. Yeah, the Bible distinguishes between inadvertent sin and the sin of the high hand, high handed sin. And Numbers fifteen um, shed some light on those distinctions. Distinctions, which even though the, the remedy for them is different, do do persist into the New Covenant. So Numbers 15, um, 27 to 36. Um, there it is. Okay. We'll go back to 22. If you sin unintentionally, and do not observe all the commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all the Lord commanded you by Moses, from the day that the Lord gave commandment onward throughout your generations. Then, if it was done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for her burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the rule. One male goat for sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel. And they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake. They have brought their offering. So notice, unintentional sins still require atonement and forgiveness. It's not simply good enough to say, I didn't know, so it's okay. It's a different class of issue, but unintentional sin is still sin, and it still needs forgiveness, and it still needs atonement. Christ died for unintentional sins. Verse 27, that's a corporate unintentional sin. Verse 27, if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for the Lord for the person who made a mistake. When he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, he shall be forgiven. He shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally for all who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, and here's the picture of the high hand, a raised fist, defiance, willful, intentional. Whether he is a native or sojourner, reviles the Lord, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Which is a nice way of saying cut off means killed, removed from the camp. Now, you go, that's the Old Testament. God was rough in the Old Testament. Go to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. We'll pick it up in verse 19. Let's get the whole flow of the paragraph. 19 to 31. He's going to start by giving them encouragement. The author of Hebrews is constantly carrot and stick, carrot stick, encouragement, warning, encouragement, warning. So he's going to encourage them to hold fast. He's going to encourage them to persevere. He's going to encourage them to gather together as we are right now. And then he's going to warn them what happens if not. Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have confidence sent to the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there's three let us Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promises faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. So let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us encourage each other. Because verse 28, the warning begins with a four. Why is it important that we gather and encourage each other? Four, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, which is part of what we just read, that high-handed sin. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved of the one who spurned the Son of God profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah, anyone who thinks the Old Testament God is the angry, mean God, the New Testament God is the nice God has not read very carefully. There's far, in some places, far, far stronger warnings in language in the New Testament than, than some of the old ones. So there's this notion of the high-handed sin, the sin of rebellion, the sin where it's when somebody, yeah, I know it's wrong, I'm going to do it anyway, I don't care. That That's a different class or category of, of sin. And David's saying, on the one hand, I'm sure I'm sinning inadvertently, unconsciously, all the time. And... um Show me those so I can be aware of that. And guard my heart from ever looking at you and saying no. Now, the good news is, even as we do that now, here in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews doesn't flat out say it's unforgivable. He it doesn't say it. He just says, what, what, do you, what do you think you should expect? <laughs> right? And I do think, I mean, I know in my own life, God's forgiven me when I've rebelled. But we need to understand that when we look God in the face and say no, I'll do what I want, that's a big deal. It's not like, well, that's okay. Jesus will forgive you. But the author of Hebrews is not. Saying that the author of Hebrews, is like, if people are put to death in Israel for that, what do you think is going to happen to you <laughs> when you trample the Son of Man underfoot, profane the blood of the covenant, and assault the spirit? I mean, that's that's a big deal. Yes, just real quick. I've always been, oh, the, the part in Hebrews, yeah, when it says, uh, if you go on. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Not having, okay. I'll give you my off the cuff reading, my understanding of Hebrews, but this Hebrews is one of the books I'd like to study more deeply. So I, 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 uh, invoke the right to later recant. Okay. I think my understanding of Hebrews as I read it, um, is that the Hebrew Christians are not professing on to maturity because precisely because they think you can lose your salvation. Yeah, go back to 6. Go back to Hebrews 6. Um, because in the sacrificial system, your sacrifice runs out, and you need to do a new one. And then you mess up again, and you go off for a new bull. And so I think they're having a hard time wrapping their heads around a once-for-all sacrifice that is finished, and so you accept, you, you, you confess Christ, you repent, you turn to him, and then you really screw up. Then what? Do you get saved again? Under the sacrificial system, that's what you do. So something's preventing them in one from pressing on to maturity. Let us leave, set aside the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, if you look at those that content of elementary foundations, it looks like gospel issues. Repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instruction about washings, or baptisms, to be just as literally translated, Um, the laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. So what he's telling them, as I understand it, and again, I'm not this is not a book that I feel like I've really deeply studied, but my off the cuff reading, um, more than off the cuff, having read this a couple times, but, um, I've read it at least three times, right? Yes, sorry. Okay, it's a joke. Um, is that the, he wants them that they're caught up in this cycle over and over again of, I think, getting saved. So set us, let's, let's move on past this. They just keep coming back. And, and that then I think explains what he says. Um, this will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who've been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance so they, since they are crucifying again the Son of God. The point is, if Jesus wasn't good enough the first time, he won't be good enough the second time. You can't re-crucify... Contra the Roman Catholic Church, you can't re-crucify Christ. And, and so... Because everyone wants to argue, is this a Christian, is this not a Christian? I'm caring about the verbs. Whatever you make of somebody who has been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, something's impossible. So if you say, this is somebody who was never saved, which is what my old pastor, John MacArthur, he thinks this is talking about a non-Christian, somebody's who's right on the verge, they come on Sunday. Then my question is, what is impossible for that person? Because that's the verbal force. And what you've got is a long conditional clause. In the case of X, and X has like eight subcategories, I've tasted it. It is impossible. What's impossible? And so if, if you read in, this is an unbeliever the whole time, what is, it's impossible for them to make another false profession of faith? Doesn't make any sense to me. Something's impossible. Now, that's the verbal force of this long clausal sentence. It is impossible, in the case of those who've once again been who've been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and shared the Heavenly Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of the Power in the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. I I my reading, uh I know this is one of the more um disputed passages in the Bible, but I'm not alone in this, whatever worth. It's not something I made up. I've I've read some other people who argue this. Is that but the author of he- what the problem the Hebrews the reason they're not progressing is they're continually getting resaved, and he's saying guys let's let's press on past every Sunday you get saved again, because if you did fall away, if Jesus somehow wasn't sufficient the first time, he won't be sufficient the second time, which is the same argument in Hebrews ten. There's no longer a sacrifice. It's not like you do a high-handed sin. It's okay, I'll go offer a bull. No, there's a once-for-all sacrifice. You don't get to get out of it that easily. Um, you, God's a consuming fire, and you've just trampled on the sun and insulted the Spirit and considered the blood of the covenant which sanctifies you a common thing. That, that Anyway, that's that's my, my off-the-cuff reading. I know good and godly men take a different reading, and I'm not prepared at length to defend that, but... Um, I think Charles Ryrie holds that view, which, yeah, anyway. Any further, is that that help? I mean, does that scheme at least make some sense? Um, That's my understanding of the warning in Hebrews 6, and I think it flows into Hebrews 12, and that also explains why the author of Hebrews is so insistent about once-for-all sacrifice. Um, But, like I said, very godly men would disagree with me on that, and I certainly haven't studied it to the point where I want to be dogmatic and say, nope, that's it. Any other questions about Hebrews? (laughs) Any other questions about Psalm nineteen? Jim. Yeah. I was wondering Romans one twenty eight, it talks about man. that? Okay. Good question. Yeah, I can find out. Um, one twenty eight. <laughs> Okay, give Bible Works Olive Tree about 10 seconds, and I'll be there. Okay, open up. Eh. Open. Nope, not highlighters. Library favorites. There we go. Um, for those of you listening at home, I'm operating an iPad. Okay. Ah. That's actually a great word. Okay, fantastic. You just hit upon something really interesting. There's a play on words here. There's a Greek word didomi. Um, uh, no, not, yeah, did, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Is it didomi? That's to give. No, this is, um, hold on, hold on. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, um, since they, there it is. Um, God, full knowledge, um, Um, give me one more second. Uh, 28. You want 28. Sorry. Um, hold on. There we go. Yeah. Okay. dakadzo Okay. dakimadzo um, means to approve, to test. So like when you buy like your shirt or your underwear and it's like inspected by number... 17 that's the concept of it's to approve or to test there's a play on words in the Greek since they literally and even as they did not approve the knowledge of God to have in fullness so they they look at here's this knowledge of God this knowledge of God evident through creation and they evaluate it and they say that's not worth holding on to we don't approve of keeping it we don't approve of holding on to it right well that's I think they're trying to get to they didn't see fit I think is where the ESV is trying to get that out of it. But the play on words is this. They did not approve of keeping or holding on to the knowledge of God. Therefore, and this word God gave them over that you see three times through Romans 1, um, God gave them over to an unapproved mind. It's dakimadzu with the alpha primitive in front. Like you have moral and amoral. It negates the word. Symmetra- symmetrical and asymmetrical. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge... since they did not approve of keeping the knowledge of God, God gave them an unapproved mind it 's kind of like saying, "Oh, you want to think perverse thoughts here 's a mind that does that really well. Here you go, which then go to, if you go to Romans twelve, which is we were looked at this morning, the solution for this unapproved mind that we are now as fallen men given is shows up in Romans twelve I remember C w Smith. I got to, sorry, C.W. Smith, godly guy was dying of cancer when I was at Master's College. I got his last semester teaching, Book of Romans. The guy taught it from a Greek New Testament. That's all he had. It was really cool. It was worn out. And I remember him highlighting this, this theme that pops up in Romans. So Romans 12... Um, I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern, literally, as approve. You may approve. In other words, this, this unapproved mind that was given over at the fall, given over as judgment, can now be transformed and renewed so that you can now finally look at what God says and say, yes, that is worth having. That's that, that's the whole issue of the gospel. It's not that man can't understand the gospel in the sense of, you know, an unbeliever could diagram John 3.16 perfectly. What they can't do is look at it and say, worth keeping, approved. I accept that. Let's receive that. And And so... Man looks at God, says, I don't want to know that. I don't approve of that. God says, here's a mind that does that type of stuff really well. And then the solution in Romans 12 too is the transforming and the renewing of your mind so that now you can approve God's will. Um, anyway, that's a neat little thread in Romans. What? Sure. yeah Sure, because um, the Holy Spirit will go to second Corinthians 4. second Corinthians four Great question. And these are all, in a sense as metaphors. There's a number of metaphors for the blindness, the deadness of unbelieving man. Um, one metaphor is a heart of stone or um, blinded eyes and deaf ears. Here is a veil, the imagery of a veil. It's, just, it's all talking about the same thing. Um, the inability of natural man to see the beauty of Christ in the gospel and therefore this inability to respond. Pick it up in verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are Perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when unbelievers perish, when you, when you share the gospel with your friend and they don't respond, it's because they don't really see it for what it is. They're blinded. They, they, they get it, but it seems ugly to them. Kind of like Psalm 19. Some people, this notion of God's word exposing sin. I don't want my sin exposed. They run from it to others when you get. It can be forgiven. It can be redeemed. It can be changed. You, you move towards it. Here, people aren't seeing. For what we proclaim, verse 5, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. And then this is wonderful. How does that veil get removed? He, he links it to Genesis 1. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What's he referencing? Let there be light has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, if I understand the imagery, just as God, without prompting or provocation from anything outside of himself, according to his good pleasure, spoke light into being, so God speaks, let them see, into the hearts of men. Now, that doesn't mean that our mind is fully conformed to God. The first thing our mind can see when it's renewed, is Christ and the gospel. And then after that, there's a whole lot of relearning we've got to do. I used to think this about marriage. I used to think this about pride. I used to think, that. now i got to approve what God says. Now I've got to transform my mind so it's following His patterns. But the very first thing is God pulling back the veil and revealing Christ. And that's not something I muster up in my own will. That's a sovereign work of God just as sovereign, I think, as God in Genesis 1 saying, let there be light. I'll give you an example of this. Go to Acts 17, Lydia. Um, or this is the same thing, um, Candy. I think Jesus is talking about in John 3 the wind blows where it will. The new birth. That's another metaphor, being born again. It's another metaphor. Um, and Jesus likens the new birth to the wind goes where it pleases. You hear it sound, you don't know where it's coming from, you don't know where it's going. Hold on, we're g- hold on, we're getting to Second Corinthians. Yes. Well but but you gotta fix the whole picture. Jesus and John eight, your sons are your father the devil and your will is to do his desire. I mean, so we come into this world on the other team, which is and the so and being on the other team, the team captain doesn't want you to see, you know? Um because your hearts and wills come in on the other team. And okay, so where where are we going? Acts. Hold on. Yes, we're dancing around the whole issue of predestination and the sovereignty of God. That's fine. But that's why this is a big issue and why, yeah, we're taking some, anyway, fair enough. Um, who The question we're looking at is, who is the initiator at conversion? God or man? Who takes the initiative? And I think the Bible again and again and again and again says God. Um, is Lydia Acts 17 or 16? I might be in the wrong one. Yeah, 16, sorry, Acts sixteen fourteen. One who heard us is a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. It was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. There's the initiator's God, a work of the Spirit, I would say, on her heart is what prepares the way for her coming to faith. He speaks light. He doesn't. Their mind isn't renewed. Well, no. He. he okay. Here's here's. God has given all of humanity over to base mind. As is a judgment for sin. Right. It's it's a judgment. It's not capricious. In Romans one, it's because because they didn't choose to acknowledge God. God did this. So it's in response. It's it's a fitting and just judgment. And then God sends the gospel out everywhere. But because, as Jesus says in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws him. So everyone's invited. No one gets turned away. No one, no one who wants Jesus gets refused. Sorry, you're unelect. Go home. But what we learn is no one's going to want Jesus unless the Father does a work changing their hearts. So Jesus can say, you can't even see and you can't even enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. It's New birth is, is essential to even see the kingdom of God, to, to even get it, right? First um, Corinthians 2, The natural mind does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to. Um, without the Spirit of God working, it's just going to look like that veil. These are all metaphors, right? the veil. So, God, so the gospel is present, and God pulls back the blinders. And all of a sudden, this message that maybe you've heard 20 times before seems lovely and beautiful. And then you, freely, no one making you, choose to turn and trust Christ. But you never would have turned and trust Christ while he still looked ugly and unappealing to you. So God turns on the lights, right? But there's still a ton of your thinking and a ton of your mind that's still been conformed to the world. And that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 12, where he's saying now, continually, I keep finding new things every day where I've adopted the world's thinking or I've adopted the world's values, and I go, whoa, and you know, straighten up my thinking. Um... Is that addressing a question, or am I dancing around it? Yes. Yeah. What? <coughs> um, is, that's... Yeah, well, there's different ways to ask that question. Let me let me, let me answer that in no, a number of ways. One, um, I think to some degree, even in heaven, I'll be careful, there will be some remembrance and or f- feelings of shame from our sin. The reason I say that is not in any way that we feel bad, but like our praise to Christ will be directly proportional to what he saved us from. I got to have some comprehension of the horror of my sin to praise the magnitude and the glory of the Savior, right? Okay. I was just telling Scott a week or two ago some episode in my life before I became a Christian that is a shameful event, and in telling it to him, I, I, I was aware of the shame. But that is not a shame that I bear around, crushing me. If, if, if I were to relate that account to somebody else, and I'm not going to here, um, in telling it, I would feel shame, right? But that has been forgiven. That has been redeemed. I don't. It doesn't beat me. So I can look to my life and say, yeah, I did some terrible things, and I was terribly unkind to some people. And when I think about that, absolutely, there's a sense of like, wow. You know, like but there's all the difference in the world between that type of guilt um, and a crushing, beating, destroying, tearing apart. Here's, here's really the question, because God does... Okay, let me take four steps backwards. Our culture doesn't know what to do with shame does not know what to do with shame. The older cultures don't know what to do with shame, but at least they recognize it's it's a big deal. It's why the the Eastern cultures, the shame cultures, right? There's who's up, who's down, who's whatever. They recognize what a powerful force shame is. Our culture is relatively new, and so recently we've become more aware of it, and our sort of one-size-fits-all dealing with shame is nobody should feel shame. Right, which is why intolerance and, and judgmentalism. If you, if you make somebody feel ashamed of their lifestyle by not selling them a cake, then you get fined because what isn't tolerated in our culture is making anyone feel shame. No one should be shamed. Or very, very like Hitler should be shamed. A very few select group of people should feel shame. Everyone else should not feel shame. The self-esteem movement is no child should ever feel shame. Right. And it's, it's, a, it's way too oversimplistic and way too one-size-fits-all. There are places in the Scripture where people are called to feel shame. So in Second in Thess- Thessalonians 3, "...if anyone does not regard our instruction in this letter, have nothing to do with that person, so that they may be put to shame." but don't regard them as an enemy, but admonish them as a brother. This is a shame that's meant to bring someone to repentance and restoration, right? So to me, the question about guilt and shame is does your guilt and shame drive you to the cross and forgiveness and your Savior and exulting in your salvation, or does your guilt and shame drive you to the corner like the dog with your tail between your legs? It's the fruit it bears. So if I'm feeling a shame or guilt, it's too simplistic to say, oh, that's from the devil. Well, the Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? And even if it's something I thought I've dealt with, maybe I haven't fully dealt with it. Have I really fully repented of that? Have I really, are there not other aspects of what I've done that I need to tease out and press out further? And is there another person I need to apologize in reference to this thing that I thought I'd confessed last week? Maybe there is. So I don't want to too quickly brush over that. If the Holy Spirit's potentially bringing it to my mind, one of the Spirit's ministries is conviction of sin and guilt and judgment. However, Satan's accuser of the brethren, and in the presence of God in Jechariah 3 with Joshua the high priest it's just, you know, telling us we're dirty, nasty schmucks. And so you've got to distinguish which one's which. And to me the distinction is, is this shame and guilt driving you towards God's Word, towards your Savior, towards prayer, towards His people? Then I'd say if that's the fruit it's bearing... Okay, bear with it. You know, the Spirit's teaching you something. If it's driving you away from the Word, away from prayer, away from God's people, it's demonic. But it's not as simple as just saying guilt, shame, bad. You know what I mean? Because the New Testament, referring to Christians, if I'm acting shamefully, I should feel ashamed. Bottom line, I shouldn't stay there. I shouldn't live there for the rest of my life. But absolutely, that's an appropriate response in my confession and turning is shame. Um, so it's too simple to say never. You, you you know what I mean? It's it's a nuanced topic. It's tough. Um More? Is that good? Or we are good? Okay. And we got all types of questions. Okay, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because I've been to one of the churches in you where square. You got to be safe. Yeah, yeah. And what I'm hearing now is how Yeah, yeah. Yes, and all your attitudes be adjusted. Yeah, the so Hebrews really is not, um, not saying that the answer to go get saved again, and right? Was, right, the answer is that's more like what we see where it says there is therefore now no problem. condemnation, so, right. But the other piece of Hebrews, though, is hold fast. It's not a, see, here's, there's these dangerous half truths, okay? You can quote, you can quote Romans 5, 1, and you can have somebody who's, who's just completely immersed themselves, given themselves to the sin, and you can say, it doesn't matter that you're a meth dealer. You, you know, Jesus forgives all sin. It's, he's, his cross is big enough. Now that's true as far as it goes, right? But if that person's like, so you're going to keep dealing meth? Yeah, sure, because, you know, Jesus paid for it, so it's okay. And there's no, now, no condemnation. You can't condemn me for dealing with meth, because I'm in Christ. Because um, the New Testament's equally clear that those who are in Christ will be driven and shepherded and herded towards righteousness, right? And so don't tell me you're in Christ if the Spirit isn't disciplining you for your sin, right? Um, so the, uh, the Hebrew's author is absolutely saying, don't get resaved but you need to press on and persevere the, the the three callings let us hold fast let us draw near and let us spur each other on to love and good deeds so it's it's the danger is the passive it's okay we're not saved by works so it doesn't matter what i do that that's wrong the other bit though is but I gotta keep my performance level. Have I been good enough today for God to love me? Have I I been obedient enough today? Have I witnessed to enough people for, for God not to kick me out of His presence? That's wrong too. It's it's holding fast in faith to Christ, which is don't. If you get discouraged, don't let go. Hold fast. If you if you feel like you screwed up, don't get discouraged. Hold fast. But holding fast also means gather with God's people and and draw near in prayer and hold fast, which isn't just some feely feeling that I have. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Okay. This is it's, there's two ways to, to f- drive off the road, and, and there's ditches on both sides. Um you can end up with what's called antinomianism, which is it doesn't matter what you do. Let us sin that grace may abound. Um and then there's the other side, which is, you know, if you're not if you're not doing this, then if you're you you're earning your salvation, that's a problem too. Um so the tree is known by its fruit, but it doesn't become a tree by its fruit. No matter how many apples I staple on to a thorn bush, it remains a thorn bush. So, so fruit proves the tree. The fr- Jesus says in John, um, not John, Matthew um, seven, "You will know them by their fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit." But trees don't become the types of trees they are by the fruit they bear. They demonstrate the type of tree they already were by their fruit. So our fruit is essential to prove who we are, but we don't become Christians by our fruit. That would be work salvation. If I just go do some stuff, I'm a Christian. If I'm a Christian, I'm going to go do some stuff. That's the issue. And so you get some people that say, it doesn't matter what fruit you bear. You can be an apple tree even if you've got thorns. No, Jesus says no. If the other wrong thing, well, I better go get some apples stapled onto my tree so I can be a Christian. No, you need to be transformed. If you're evidencing, you're a thorn bush. Don't go try to act like a apple tree. Go get a new heart. You know um, that that's that's the important distinction. Does that that help? Fruit evidences what something is. It doesn't make something what it is. That's really the crucial, I think, piece. And so we want to hold on to both of those because, on the one hand, I, I've met people. That it's usually not for themselves. Most people won't say, "Yes, I'm in. I'm in reckless." sin and i'm a christian it's usually someone they love their son their daughter their cousin right and i you want to hope they're christian you want to hope it's real but the fruit they bear consistently is thorns unmitigated uninterrupted thorns and the scripture speaks pretty clearly to that i'm not going to judge them but the scripture would identify them as a thorn tree but you don't want to flip to the other area on the other side, which is um, work salvation. So we've got to establish we will, given enough time, we will evidence what we are. Given enough time, we will. Or, or was anyone back? Alyssa. You remember this from youth group. We always, 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 all, seven always, 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 always live out what we believe. You can't separate what you believe and what you do. Sin is lived out unbelief. When, when the serpent said, you won't die, you'll be like God, we know whether she believed God or not by what she did, right? Who did she believe, God or the serpent? How do we know what she did? And so I can, you can look at my life, I can look at your life, and I can see what you actually do in fact believe by what you do. Which is why anything that says, no, you can believe XYZ, but live ABC. No, you don't. If you're living XYZ, you believe XYZ. I guess a little grayer is most of our lives are a mixture of apples and thorns, or figs and thorns to actually stick with the biblical metaphor, and that's where I think you got to look to where you're growing. Are there more figs than last month? You know, and that's where second. Let's end this discussion. We got five minutes. Let's go to Second Peter, because um, honestly, my life is a mixture of thorns and figs. Um, it's not as simple as being like, "Yep, I'm a fig tree." Well, there's, there's a fair amount of thorns that show up. Second Peter was the first real passage I ever went to that I could get some real solid assurance of my salvation from, because First John's great, but First John's so stinking black and white. This is how you know the sons of God. This is how you know the sons of the devil. I know who sins doesn't know God. The one who does righteousness. Well, what about me who does both? You know and no, first John's frightening. It, the Greek helps soften that up a little bit, like the Greek's a little more clear. It's not an absolute perfection standard, it's the one who practices, which is and nergerzo, which means to work or to, to no, it's point. Sorry, I'm speaking without knowing what I'm talking about. The word means to craft or create or to be a profession. So, the, really, the question in first John is, are you a worker of sin or a worker of righteousness? Which one defines you? And anyway, but second Peter. Three through eleven. Chapter one. Sorry, second Peter one, three to eleven. I'm sorry. His divine so he's going to start off with the warrant for the exhortation. Because this is true, he's going to start making some commands or instructions in verse five. So because verses three and four are true, therefore verse five and following. His divine power, God has given you everything you need to obey him. God has given you everything you need to be conformed to his image. He's given you his promises. He's given you his word through the knowledge of him. So if that's true, if God has said, hey, you can become as sanctified as you want. You can become as much like my son as you want. It may hurt. It may sting. But I will give you the grace. I've given you the tools. I've given you my word. You can change. If that's true, therefore, verse 5, for this reason, make every effort, agonidzo, which we get agonized from, to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge of self-control. And self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Now look at this, verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, the tree bearing more figs than it used to, less thorns, if these are yours and increasing; they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed by his former from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. How do I confirm my calling and election? How do I confirm I'm a Christian? Be growing. That's what he's saying. For as long as you practice these things, you will never fall. So, verse eight again is the key. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, that's how you confirm your 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 salvation is growing. How do you, you know? It, when I when I want to prove to you that my baby daughter Eliana is alive and growing, I don't pull out my birth certificate. I show you a breathing, eating, pooping baby. Right. But a lot of Christians. Want to pull out their birth certificate. See, it was January 15th, 1998. Like, no, no, James, show me your faith by your deeds. Just, if someone's like, wants to prove you're a Christian, you should just be able to show them the last week of your life. That's, that's how you show someone you're a Christian. Not, well, here's my birth certificate. I'm alive because I got my birth certificate right here. So. Okay. We're just about out of time. So I'm going to do the unthinkable and let you go early. Um. Next week, same bat time, same bat channel. We will ultimately get back to the Holy Spirit questions um, from our sheet. But God bless.